We started a couple of weeks ago just spending some of these Sunday nights, which we usually treat as a little bit more of an intense, more meaty teaching section uh, for, our, um, uh, for what we do during the sermons. We started saying, Let, let's address some of the hard questions. These are the questions that it's very tempting for Bible class teachers and, frankly, for preachers to skirt around. I love preaching sermons on heaven. That's fun. I love preaching sermons on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is gospel. That is good news. Some of these questions are much, much tougher. Tonight, I want to just talk about hell, and and I do not love this topic. And I do not like preaching about it or talking about it. And I, I think we in general don't because it's so scary and because it is so difficult to get our heads around, and because uh, we, we're, we may ourselves, as Christians, be uncomfortable with what hell is. So, so let's just think about it a little bit tonight. The idea of this is not to give you encyclopedic knowledge uh, about how to respond to every conceivable objection or question that people might have, The idea is that as we are increasingly in a society that asks questions overtly about Christianity, that you'll have some things that you can say, and you'll also be able to say, and we can study this more. I'd like to invite you to study this more. So let's talk about hell. This is one of those areas where people who don't believe in Christianity, this is one of the reasons they'll give for why they don't. So I guess the first question is, why do we believe in it then? A lot of people don't believe in it. Why do we? What are our reasons for believing in it? And uh, let's go to a couple of passages, and maybe that'll help us to, to get that in our minds, why it is that we have this Christian belief in hell. The first passage is the one that we just had read, uh, that James read to us, Uh, that Matthew 25 passage. Um, Matthew 25, Jesus is depicting the judgment as Jesus himself sitting on the throne and kind of sorting out the, the, the saved from the lost. And And we know, you know, that the basis for judgment there is given is, you know, did you take care of the hungry and the thirsty and the naked and the poor? And if you did, then you get one fate. And if you didn't, then here's this other fate. And and there are a whole bunch of questions to ask about that. But but for the question of hell, um, we really look at what he says to those who are lost. He says, depart from me, verse 41 Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and the angels. And uh, down there in verse 46, he says, So they will then go away into eternal punishment. So what do we think hell is? And how long do we think it lasts? This passage kind of tells us that. It is the fire, the punishment that was prepared for the devil and his angels. And it is eternal. That word eternal in Greek means into the ages, for ages and ages. 
Uh, and it is the word that Jesus has just used to talk about the eternal reward for those who he has said that are on his right hand who did feed the hungry and clothe the naked and, and visit the prisoners. You go into the, the reward that is eternal, into the ages, and those of you who are on the left side, you go into the punishment that is eternal. So it is fiery punishment for the devil and his angels, and those uh, who are lost fall into that. Uh, that's sort of re-emphasized again in the book of Revelation. There are a couple of passages we can go to there. Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 11. Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 11. This is part of the the drama of who's going to be faithful and who's going to persecute and who's going to uh, stand up for Jesus no matter what pressures society brings on uh, is all being played out under the image of the mark of the beast. And are you going to accept the mark of the beast just to get along in this world or are you going to stand up for Jesus Christ even if that brings you suffering? That's kind of the drama of this section of Revelation. And we read this, A third angel followed them, and he said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath, they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image and anyone who receives the mark of its name. So again, uh, how long, what is the punishment, and how long? It's some kind of fire, some kind of uh, torment, and it goes on and on and on and on. I mean, that's just the picture that Scripture gives us. Revelation 20, verses 10 through 15. The devil who deceived them, it's, talking about, it's the second, I view this as the second battle of Armageddon in the book of Revelation. Uh, and, and so the devil is released for a short time. He deceives the nations they all march out to try and make war on the saints, and they are destroyed. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence. There was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life is thrown into the lake of fire. So that's the same image that we saw back up in uh, Matthew. That's the same image that we saw earlier in the book of Revelation. There is this place of torment, which is originally created for the devil and his angels. And uh, human beings can end up there. 
if they are in rebellion against God in some way. That's our picture of hell in Scripture. There's another mention of it in Revelation 21, and there are other places that we could go. Uh, If you're asked why Christians believe in it, it's because, as best we can tell, that's what the Bible says. Now, let me be real clear with you about this. No human being can tell you what to believe. I do not have any authority to say this is the correct doctrine of hell and force you to believe that. Uh, Now, our elders here at Wilshire, they do have the authority to say this is the doctrine we're going to teach, teach at this congregation. And they have the right to tell me, teach it this way, Jim, because this is what we believe it is. And, you know, if I just can't go along with that, I can't preach here. I mean, that's just the way that would go. But no human being has the right to tell you what to believe. You should only believe about the doctrine of hell what you think the Bible says. So like the Bereans, when we give you scriptures like this, it's important for you to study on your own, to understand them and to be convinced. But my understanding of passages like this is that hell is being described as an eternal place of punishment, not originally designed for human beings, but a place where human beings can end up if they are in rebellion against God. Um, Well, There are some questions that we'd like to ask about that. The first one probably is this. What's hell going to be like? What's hell going to be like? And let me, let me preface what I'm going to say here by this. You, as a Christian, you are not obligated to defend everything any Christian has ever said about hell. And kind of when I realized that, that was a great relief to me. Christians have kind of gone through phases about the doctrine of hell. There have been times when it seems like that was the only thing Christians could talk about, almost. Where everything Christians wrote and every sermon Christians preached, you know, whatever the supposed topic was supposed to be, the real topic ended up being hell. And, and the stuff that was said about hell in, sometimes went way beyond what you actually had scriptural evidence for. So let me assure you, you know, when somebody says, what about hell? Make sure you know what they mean when they say hell. And make sure you don't get trapped into defending some view of hell that isn't scriptural anyway. Say, well, here's what I think the Bible says hell is. Let's look at the Bible for that, and, and, and let's address that. You may not have a problem with what the Bible actually says about hell. You may only be having a problem with some crazy thing you heard some youth minister say or some preacher say or, or read in some crazy pamphlet sometime. So you are not obligated to defend everything that every Christian has ever said about hell. What, what you need to do is try to figure out what the Bible actually says about it and and try to be able to be true to that when people ask you questions. I'm really serious about that. Y'all look serious, so I thought I'd I'd throw that out. Y'all do look serious, I'll tell you. Well, what is hell going to be like? What is hell going to be like? Well, 
I doubt that we are able to imagine it very well. Just as I mentioned this morning, I'm not sure I know what heaven's really going to be like. Uh, I think that both heaven and hell are, strictly speaking, beyond us. I can imagine things that are within my experience or some kind of extension of my experience that I've already had. And so when you describe things to me, you kind of have to bring it down to my level. Okay, well, you know what this is like? Well, this, this thing that you haven't experienced before, it's going to be kind of like that. You know? I remember, uh, this is, Yodi's going to kill me for this, but when we were getting ready to have our first child, the midwives would try to describe labor pain. I'm sure I, no long, I, I do not know what labor pains are like, nor do I wish to have that knowledge. But they would say things like, well, there's pressure. You know, there's a, there's a wave of pressure. And, and they would try to describe it in terms... I, I, you, I refer to the mothers in the audience whether or not any descriptions you received before the experience were actually accurate. Imagine trying to explain color to a blind person. You could sort of do that, I guess. I mean, you could say, well, what, what, what experiences have they had? Well, they can taste, they can feel, they can smell. So you, well, orange, the color orange, is sort of like the taste of a tomato, and the color blue is sort of like the taste of water, cold water. Or, I don't know, uh, how did I do? Ter- thank you. Yeah. Well, I think you're right. I think I did do ter- I mean, all I can possibly do with somebody is try to translate the reality that I have experienced into what they are able to experience. So, so when the Bible tries to talk to us about heaven, or when the Bible tries to talk to us about hell, what can it do? It has to use our language. It can't suddenly give us a primer in God's language. It has to use our language and our experiences to do that. And so um, it has to kind of try to explain those things. And, and if a person that you're talking to is already in the mode of mocking Christianity and making fun of it, it's pretty easy to do that in, when you're talking about these unseen realities that are beyond our description. It's pretty easy. It's just like it's pretty easy to make fun of my attempt right then to, to describe colors in terms of taste or any other modality, right? So, so be aware of that and just say, you know, I think the scriptures are, are trying to describe things that are literally beyond our comprehension, and they're just trying to give us images that maybe can help our minds get closer to what the reality is like. Well, what are some of the images that we have in scripture? We've already seen some of them. It's like fire. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a place of punishment for the devil and his angels, and it's a place where we can end up. It's like a lake of fire. Here's another one, Matthew 8. 
verses 11 and 12. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places in the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That, that, those phrases actually occur a lot in Jesus' own preaching. It's the outer darkness where there is weeping and, and the gnashing of teeth. It's a place of anguish. Why do you gnash your, what is gnashing of teeth? We don't say that anymore. When do you gnash your teeth? Pardon? You, when you grit your teeth, in anger and in pain, right? In anger or in pain. Uh, it's a place uh, of, of extremes, of anger and pain, I think. And that's what's being described. It's dark. How can it be fiery and dark? Well, I don't know. I don't know. I think fire is something that we're afraid of. Darkness is something that we're afraid of. Hell's really terrible. I, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm supposed to be able to form a physical image. That, that hasn't stopped Christians and Christian artists from trying to paint all this and fill that in for us. And like I said, you're not obligated as a Christian to defend everything any Christian has ever imagined about this. Just try to stick close to what the text actually says. It is being on the outside, not on the inside. Um, Jesus tells this story, and actually I think this is pretty good. Uh, Matthew 25, verses 1 through 11. It's the story of the, of the um, ten virgins, five wise, five foolish. And their, their function is to light the streets for the wedding parade. In our weddings, who's the star? Weddings today, who is the star? This isn't really confusing for us. We know who the star is. The bride. In those weddings, guess who the star was? The bridegroom was the star. The bridegroom was the star. I'm, I'm perfectly happy with the way we've changed things. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to go back to that, but I'm just telling you the, what, what their customs were. That, you know, the big parade, the big moment was kind of getting the bridegroom and him going and being escorted to where the wedding ceremony was. And, and then it was a huge celebration. Some of these wedding feasts would go on for days and days and days, you know. And, and do you want to be at the feast? Do you want to be kicked out, you know, in the parking lot outside? You want to be at the feast. That's where all the goodies are, right? So these are the girls who are out there, and they're supposed to, they're the young girls, they're supposed to light the way so that it can be a proper celebration. And five of them, you know, they have their little lamps, but they also got a little flask of oil extra in case the bridegroom is delayed, and sure enough, he is delayed. Five of them have just got their little lamps and come rushing out, and they're all pretty, and, but they're running out of oil. And they say, give us some oil. They say, no, we don't have enough oil for you and us. Go and buy some. So they run off and they try to buy some, and that's exactly when the bridegroom comes. And the whole thing, that whole story is about being prepared, be ready for whenever the bridegroom comes, Jesus being the bridegroom. But what happens to the, the, the five foolish virgins in that story? Pardon? It's, the door is shut. 
When they get back, the door is already shut. The party's already started. And it's like no admittance. You can't, you can't come in. That's another one of our... And, 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 in, and in 1 Thessalonians, when we get a description of the punishment, it's being cast on the outside. The door is shut. The party is going on on the other side of the door and you're cast out. Uh, Jesus probably talked about hell more than anybody else in the New Testament. But far more than he talked about hell, he talked about the kingdom of heaven and how much you want to be in the kingdom of heaven. And some of his images of the kingdom of heaven, one of his favorite images of the kingdom of heaven, one we don't use as much as we probably should, is the feast image, right? The grand party. I love parties. And, and heaven is just like this amazing party, the best party you ever went to. And hell is being told, sorry. You can't come in. You missed the party. God, all of history is building to this moment when God can finally make his dwelling with human beings. And to be in that place where God makes his dwelling with human beings, where he's the light, we don't even need the sunshine, because he's the light. To be in that place is to be at the grandest celebration of all, the fulfillment of every yearning and desire you've ever had, the, the best that could happen. So then what's hell? Hell is realizing, I miss that. I miss that. I am not going to be at that party. I don't know what the torments of hell are. I don't know what that's like. But the fundamental reality of hell is that I missed God's party. I missed God's plan. I missed the, the renewal and the transformation that God wants to do. And I'm shut out from the blessings that God wants to give. Uh, that's the despair. That's the gnashing of teeth. That's the burning fire. That's the outer darkness and all of those things. I, again, I don't think we can imagine what all of this is, but, but, but that seems to be the core of what it is to be, hell, the, the, uh, to be in hell. The image that, as you know, Jesus used a lot, and some of the other New Testament writers picked it up, is that, uh, that valley of Hinnom. Uh, that, that place where horrible things had happened in the history of Israel and uh, where at least some sources indicate there was a burning dump. There's controversy about that nowadays. But, but the idea of being cast out because you're not worthy, that's what hell apparently is like in Scripture. Well, another question comes up. We really have a couple of problems. I think a lot of unbelievers in particular have problems with this question. The punishment of hell lasts forever. How can I commit enough sins to deserve to go to hell? Hell apparently lasts forever. It's eternal. It's a, it lasts as long as heaven does. Same words are used for heaven and hell. How can I commit enough sins to deserve to go to hell? 
If I start committing sins as fast as I can right now, maybe I can commit 10 a second. And I do that for the rest of my life. How many sins am I going to commit? I don't know. Somebody can do the math on that. A lot. But I'm not going to commit an infinite number. And it seems like hell is infinite. It lasts and lasts and lasts and lasts and lasts. So it seems like sooner or later I ought to have paid my debt to God or, or something like that. I ought, to, I ought to be, you know, I ought to be paid up. You know, we talk about people in prison and we say they've, they've paid their debt to society. Why can't I pay my debt to God? And when we're talking to people, again, I think we just have to say, you know, uh, we're somewhat in the dark about this. We, we believe in hell mainly because the Bible says that it's real. But there might be a few things that we can say to help them understand it. Um, I think what I deserve, what, what punishments I deserve are a function of a variety of different things. For instance, if I do something wrong to a stranger, and if I do something wrong to a close friend, which of those is worse? Which of those is worse? Which of those makes us feel that the person is a worse person? When I betray a friendship, there's an extra damage. I mean, it's wrong to do wrong to anybody. But it's like I've done something creepier when you and I have a bond of intimacy and, and, and supposedly trust and then I violate that, right? That's pretty terrible. Um, what is my relationship with God? Whether I acknowledge it or not, whether I'm aware of it or not, whether I run away from it my whole life or whether I embrace it, what's my relationship with God? He has been in it, intimate with me my entire life. He has never been apart from me. And sin, even the tiniest sin, is a violation of that, the highest intimacy I've got. So it's, it's probably, we probably are pretty terrible at estimating what it is we actually deserve when we sin against God. We're better, I think, at estimating what I deserve when I sin against another human being. I don't think we even have all the mental equipment necessary to figure out what I deserve when I even commit one sin against God. Um, if I hurt a stranger or I hurt my mother, which of those is worse? If I sin against a stranger, do wrong against a stranger, or do wrong against my mother, which of those is worse? Pardon? Against your mother. Why? There's a second reason. There's intimacy there, but there's another reason going on, right? What's, what's the other reason? Pardon? She gave you life. She is your benefactor. I mean, she gave you an amazing blessing, right? I mean, I know that it's a standard thing for kids to say, I didn't ask to be born, but the fact is, you're, 
you know you're glad you are born and, and, and that's your mother and your father who did that. And when you do wrong to somebody who's given you a great blessing like that, that's just worse than when you do it. To... So again, what is our relationship to God like? God transcends so far beyond what our, even our parents have done for us. Our debt to him is so far greater than what our parents have done for us we, I don't think we even have the mental equipment to calculate how horrible it is when we sin against God. I just don't think we've got it in us. To cal- I think we're better, as I said, against kind of calculating these things. Well, this is how bad it is to sin against this person and this person and this person. I just don't think we just really even have it in our heads to figure out how bad our sin is in relationship to God. There's also probably a third factor there uh, that we might think about. If, if you're a member of the military, let's say, this probably makes it easier to think about. If you're a member of the military, you're a private, and you punch a sergeant in the face, what's going to happen to you? You strike a non-commissioned officer, what's going to happen? You may get court-martialed. Since he's a non-com, he may just punch you back. But... but uh, If you punch a general in the face, what's going to happen? For sure a court-martial. And actually, it may be that officially the punishment is worse for punching the higher the officer is, but we kind of think it's also, it's a more serious crime. The higher up the, the chain of command you go, the worse that is. And again, where is God in terms of rank? I, I, I think so. <laughs> God has infinite rank, I suppose, or infinite dignity. And so when I've assaulted him, when I've committed a crime against him, when I, I don't know how bad that is. I probably don't have the mental equipment to figure out how bad that is. And we said, you know, it seems crazy to send somebody to hell forever because surely, no matter how bad your sin is, you will eventually pay the debt. I don't know that we know that when we're talking about sins against God. For one thing, what would I use exactly to pay my debt? Everything about me comes from God. I don't have anything of my own to pay with. I'm not sure that hell is a case of paying off debt. I'm not sure that there's anything I have that can pay the debt except to claim the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm, just, I'm not sure that anything else works, and that's actually, I think, what Christians believe about this. So by sinning, I put myself in this horrible position of debt to a being on whom I'm absolutely dependent, with whom I am completely intimate, who has done amazingly good things to me over and over again all of my life, and who, who deserves not my insult but my worship, and I have done terrible things to him, I don't think I have a leg to stand on if I stand up and say, well, yeah, but you don't deserve to, I don't deserve to go to hell for that. I don't think I know what I deserve for that. One last thing, who ends up in hell? I don't think we know that for sure. I don't know because I don't think we're given all the details about how God's going to do his judgment. 
you know, and so, so I, 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 I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure of this, when God's judgment day comes, every judgment he, every sentence he pronounces, all of us are going to go, that's brilliant. Why didn't I think of that? You know, when he decides what he's going to do with these people over here who had, you know, no chance at understanding the gospel, or when he decides what he's going to do with these people who lived in the Old Testament, when he decides what he's going to do with all these... All those cases, we may not be able to guess right now what he's going to do with all that, but, but when he says it, we're going to all go, that's genius. I'm sure of that. Every judgment God gives is going to be perfect. Perfect. None of us are going to say, I don't know where he got that. When I am, who ends up in hell? Hell. When I am rebelling against God, what am I saying? When I'm rebelling against God in sin, I'm saying, I don't want you, God. I'd rather have this sin thing here. I don't want you, God. I'd just rather tell this lie. I don't want you, God. I'd just rather, you know, have this high. I don't want you, God. I'd just rather have this power. I don't want you, God. I'd rather have these monies. Whatever. I'm saying I don't want you, God. And it's possible, at least, that part of why hell is people being on the outside, shut away from God, is because these are the people who all their life have said, I don't want you, God. And and they may reach a place where they really don't want God. They really don't. They want his blessings, maybe, but they don't want him. And God finally says, your will be done. Your will be done. And that may be what hell is. That may be what happens. Hell I think we are in the dark about a lot of the details about hell. I think one of the things we aren't in the dark about, because this the Bible speaks very clearly and directly about, you do not want to go there. You want to be on the inside of that door where God's party is, where his grand feast, where the kingdom of heaven is, where God comes and lives with human beings, where all tears are wiped away, where every disease is annihilated, where everything that's bad and impure and wicked is gone so that we can actually be in the presence of God. That's where you want to be. And you can be there because of what Jesus Christ has done. Now, if you're unclear about some of the details of hell, join the party because that's all of us are. But you don't need to be unclear about that. You want to be with God when God brings in the kingdom that he's created through Jesus Christ. And you can do that by being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, by washing away your sins and being part of God.